name is Vanessa Cecil, and it is my pleasure to be here on Joy Corner today. When I think about what gives me joy today, I think my answer is quite different from what I would have said a long time ago when I was young. I think when I was much younger, I would have said, you know, going to a party and staying out till four o'clock in the morning and eating pizza with friends on a street corner or having some crazy adventurous trip somewhere far away, um, going to Mount Everest or going to Bhutan or somewhere else in the Himalayas, although those things still give me joy today. Um, I think my answer today would be more subtle, less exciting. I would still be excited to fly across the world and to see more of it. I would still find it fun to hang out with friends till four o'clock in the morning, although I'd be more tired, I think, today than I would have been 30 years ago. But what really gives me joy today is storytelling. It's listening to stories and telling my own stories. It's discovering stories that come from mythologies and traditions all over the world and finding that I can relate to them, finding that they have something still to say, that stories, almost no matter where and when they come from, they are the truths of the human experience. They still delight and they entertain and they instruct. So I have been enamored with stories all my life, but I don't think I related to them quite as I do now. I have been writing about stories as a scholar for more than 20 years. But what's interesting is that when I first started as an academic, I thought that what it was to be a good scholar was to look at stories, which is what I was doing, study them, read them in their original languages, analyze them, take them apart and reconstruct them and try to see what kind of clues I can find about what it tells us about this context that produced it. There was something in my imagination that was cold and calculating. That to be a good scholar, you had to be cold and you had to assess from a distance and kind of furrow your brow as you analyze whatever it was that you were reading and stay far, far away from it, not be touched by it, not, not be moved, not feel as though you yourself were entering the story because that's not what a good scholar does. This stifled me. I did it for a long time. I did it well. But eventually, I found I couldn't continue. And so a number of years ago, I was studying the story of the Buddha's wife. And her story, Yashodara, is so beautifully tragic. The story of Yashodara is that the Buddha is married to her for lifetimes and lifetimes, according to the early traditions. But that in his final lifetime, he just has to go. He has to become the Buddha. And so he is urged, he is compelled to leave, to go seek something higher. But he's been married to her for such a long time. And so there's something quite wonderfully torturous and tragic about this story. And most people don't even know that he had a wife. But if you look at the literature, you'll find her there. And so he escapes, he leaves her in the middle of the night because he doesn't have the courage, so far as I read the texts, to say goodbye and so she wakes up the next morning to discover that he's gone. And then she goes through a whole long experience of suffering and pain and anger and sense of betrayal. She accuses people, how could you let him go? I mean, it's just an extraordinary story. It's 2,500 years old. It's been recorded in text as far back as 2,000 years ago. And it's just as poignant today as it was then, that we all can relate to this sense of loss that she has. 
And then this inspiration that she overcomes it, that she finds her way forward despite all the suffering she has known. And so I was reading these texts and I was so moved by her. I had to do some work on her story, but I found that I couldn't keep a disinterested eye, which is what I thought I was supposed to do. And so one day, I remember it really clearly, (laughs) I took my laptop, I went to my favorite coffee shop, I opened it up and I thought, I'm going to be her. I'm not going to do it the traditional way. And so I started imagining who she was and I took on her voice and I wrote this book called Yashodra and the Buddha that became a novel, but that was based on all of my scholarship where I told her story based on all the stuff that I knew about this ancient world and all the different versions of the story and how it went. But I told it from her perspective. I told her story as a story. I didn't analyze it in an obvious way. I analyzed it and then created the story for myself. And I had so much fun. I was so excited to do this kind of writing, to dive into her story and disappear into it, to try to figure out what it's like to speak like her, to be in a world that had different rules and different ways of being, and yet a world that I could still completely and totally understand. And so I wrote this book. It took a long time because I had to write and rewrite and rewrite. (laughs) I didn't quite know how to write a novel at the time. I'd never written dialogue. I mean, the whole thing was just completely new and very exciting. I got so invested in it that I would open it up and write, even if it took five minutes of my time. (laughs) That's all I had. I would take five minutes and write in between meetings or... I'd be late for class because I caught myself up in writing and forget to go to school and go to my classes to teach. I wrote all the time and I had a wonderful time and I thought, oh, maybe I'm not a scholar anymore. Maybe what I want to be is a creative writer. I want to be an author, write fiction. Because in my head, it was either or. You're either one or you're the other, but you can never be both. And certainly in the classical world of religious studies in the academy, which is a very conservative place, you aren't both, you're one or the other. Or so I thought. And so I was preparing myself, almost like I was going to make my own great departure. I was, you know, leaving, I was walking away from the academy to be an author instead, that the academy would leave me before, (laughs) if I didn't leave it, because I had done something, a betrayal almost, by writing something creative instead of writing as a scholar. And then the book came out, and my hands were ringing, and I was so anxious, and I discovered that the either or or that I had created in my head might have been completely wrong. As other people engaged with the book and I allowed myself to engage with it with them, I discovered that there is no separation that really has to happen. That scholarship can be creative and that good creative writing can be educated (laughs) or scholastic in its background. And I started to realize that knowledge doesn't have to be articulated in a particular box. One day, I came across a wonderful little book by Umberto Eco. If you don't know him, he is a very famous writer who wrote The Name of the Rose, a wonderful book about medieval Christianity, a monastery in medieval times in Europe. It turns out that Umberto Eco wrote his first novel in his 50s, which was very exciting to me because I did mine in my 40s. 
Um, and this book is called Confessions of a Young Novelist, which he wrote in his 60s. <laughs> and he viewed himself as a young novelist in his 60s because he only started about a decade earlier. And in this book, in his reflections on what it is to write, he talks about his background as an academic. And I did not know he was a scholar before. He was a scholar of linguistics, very conservative as well, and had spent his career studying languages. And then one day had the same impulse that he had to write something creatively, take all of his information and do something different with it. And so he wrote The Name of the Rose. And in this book, he tells his readers exactly what I was beginning to understand for myself, that there shouldn't be a dividing line between scholarship and creativity, that there are all kinds of writers and all kinds of thinkers, and that these boxes don't have to be so rigid. And so this is maybe the thought that gives me the most joy these days, is that instead of thinking I have to be this or I have to be that, or I belong to this box and this category or I belong to that box and that category, maybe what really gives me joy today is discovering that we don't really have to be in any boxes at all. That as I get older, the boxes vanish and life gets more vast so that one can be creative and a scholar, an author, and maybe something else completely different as well. That all of these boxes that we think say so much about us maybe say very little at all. And that what we have at the source of it all is just ourselves, our stories, our ways of seeing the world, and maybe that's enough. And that all those big, dramatic, you know, quests for joy might, at least for me at this moment in my life, are starting to get much more subtle, much more nuanced, and yet much faster. And so if I were to answer the question that you have asked about what are my dreams, I suppose my dreams are connected to wanting maybe, although this is the more factor that we're all prone to, but maybe more of this, more of unraveling the boxes and the statuses and identities and the titles and letting them go and finding the fluidity of interconnection between them all so that we don't have to be one or the other of anything, that we can just be vast and open and ourselves. So that's my contribution to the Joy Corner, my bizarre offering of vastness of what gives me joy. Thank you for listening. We all have a story to share and a voice that is meant to be heard, and we want to share yours. For more information and to get involved, visit storiesofinspiringjoy.com. Stories of Inspiring Joy is a production of Seek the Joy Media and created by Sydney Weiss. You can find all episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like the show, hit subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and follow along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're creating greater connection and community, one powerful story at a time.